Multiple sclerosis is a devastating disease, and the cure seems far away. What's being done to help patients right now, and who's doing it? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients by repurposing current therapies for new uses. Joining us to discuss the genesis and mission of the Myelin Repair Foundation is Russell Rusty Bromley, Chief Operating Officer. Rusty was formerly the CEO of Lab Velocity Incorporated, an internet information portal for the life science research community. And prior to that, he was the CEO of Berkshire Holding Corporation and had 17 years with American Hospital Supply Corporation and Baxter Healthcare. Rusty holds a degree in biochemistry from Rice University and has joined us to talk about the Myelin Repair Foundation. Rusty, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks, Bruce. It's great to be here. So what is the Myelin Repair Foundation? The Myelin Repair Foundation is an innovative nonprofit medical research organization that's focused on accomplishing two goals. First is finding ways to improve the lives of people with multiple sclerosis by repairing the damage that's caused by the disease. And second, in the process, uh, developing a new model for early-stage medical research that will help accelerate and facilitate the transition from the basic science laboratories, which are typically located at universities, into the development and manufacturing of pharmaceutical and biotech treatments. So I've heard the Myelin Repair Foundation founder, Scott Johnson, tell others that the system is broken. How does the current system of medical research find or not find new therapies, and how is the MRF's Accelerated Research Collaboration, or ARC, model different? Well, it's sort of ironic, Bruce. As you know, the academic research community is largely funded by the government, and that process developed starting in 1946 with the uh, advent of the National Institutes of Health. And the pharmaceutical model really began around World War II as well with the advent of penicillin and other antibiotics and was largely developed out of the chemical industry. And these two different sources of birth for the two principal components of our research world have actually diverged over time. So while there used to be a fairly ready flow of basic biological science into early-stage drug discovery, it's become less and less over the last few years. And so we saw this chasm between first-rate academic research discoveries and the dwindling pipeline uh, that currently exists within the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. I met Scott in early 2003, and he had a vision for changing this ecosystem. It's a problem with the ecosystem that caused me to leave medical research in 1977 because I couldn't see how the work I was doing at the bench was ever going to help cure cancer, which was ostensibly what we were working on. And so uh, after a 25-year career in industry, I elected to move into the nonprofit world to help Scott turn this vision into a reality and help bring our young academic researchers closer to patient-oriented problems that could only be solved by an integrated team approach. So tell us about this accelerated research consortium model. What are the components of it, and why is it so much better than what else is out there? Well, the the traditional culture is a winner-take-all system that rewards individuals competing against each other. Uh, You might liken it to professional sports or Hollywood. It's a star system. And so you're out there competing with everybody else in your field, and what this does is retard the flow of information. 
the process that they go through is to submit a request for a, a proposal, the NIH does. The investigator then comes up with what they believe are innovative ideas in the area of the proposal request, submit the proposal, and hopefully eventually get funded. Then they do the work and eventually publish the work. And this cycle takes from four to six years, typically. At that point, the discovery can be utilized by another scientist in another lab to further advance the field, but it's a very sequential process. Scott's vision was to turn this sequential process, a relay race, if you will, uh, into a concurrently engineered process where you had multiple members on the same team all working on different aspects of the problem simultaneously and sharing the results of those investigations in real time. So we've been able to collapse a process of discovery that historically would take 15 to 20 years to discover a new drug target into a process that now takes less than three years within our own organization. How shocking is that to the scientists and how different does this feel to them and what kind of responses have you got when they've done this positive and negative? Well, it was a big case of culture shock in the beginning, as you can imagine. And you know, one of the reasons that I got together with Scott in the first place was he'd accomplished something I thought was fairly miraculous, and that was to find a group of five senior scientists who were very well established in their own area of expertise. They were all tenured professors at the top of their game who were willing to put aside the status quo and engage in an entirely new process, this great experiment for team-based science. They brought with them some really first-rate young people and were willing to step way outside the box in terms of how they operated and sharing information with each other. And, you know, they in many ways had to check their ego at the door in order for this to be successful. And the thing that kept me up at night for the first couple of years was, would we ever truly evolve a, a, a true interdisciplinary and interdependent culture, or would we continue to be a group of silos that just got a little bit closer together? And uh, the biggest thrill for me in this entire process has been to watch the team come together and become fully interdependent upon each other and really support each other's activities in a very meaningful way that's clearly accelerating the results that they're generating. What would you say other than that has been your biggest one or two successes and where did you stumble and what have you done to fix that? Well, one of the things that we did from the get-go was make everything a team process. So when we brought these scientists together, and they're from five different universities, they're from Stanford, Northwestern, University of Chicago, Case, and Johns Hopkins, in five different locations, we knew that this was going to be different than anything they'd participated in before. And so we had to create rules of the road so that people had mutual expectations and understandings around the processes that we would be using. None of them had ever been involved in putting something like this together, and neither had we. So it was a great experiment from the front. Since Scott and I both came out of the business world, the first thing we learned was we speak a completely different language than discovery biologists. And so uh, that was one of the very first things that we had to address and, and really the first big hurdle we overcame. But fortunately, we've got a pretty fault-tolerant group. I understand that you received a Robert Wood Johnson grant to teach other foundations about this accelerated research collaboration model. How did that grant come about and who have you taught and what's happened? Yeah, that was really an interesting story because, as I said from the beginning, our goal was not only to find new effective treatments for patients with multiple sclerosis, but also to create a model that could be replicated with other diseases by other organizations. We were introduced to the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation about four years ago, and their mission is promoting health and health care for all Americans, but interestingly, specifically prohibited from funding medical research. They are, however, very interested in the infrastructure and the ecosystems that are out there today, and they recognize the same problem that we had, that academic research was disconnected from 
commercial implementation and that divide between the scientists doing basic discovery and those that were responsible for developing new scientific technology into drugs and treatments was getting larger and larger over time. And so we evaluated the model with them, demonstrated how we thought it could change the landscape of medical research, and they agreed that this was an experiment that really warranted some support. And so the grant that they made to us was really to develop infrastructure and processes that then can be promulgated with organizations. And and to date, we've uh, shared our model and elements of our processes with over 65 other nonprofit organizations. And have any of them begun to create an accelerated research consortium of their own? It's been interesting. Uh, there have been several small startup organizations that have really embraced the model and are running with it. In fact, I just talked to one of their CEOs earlier this morning. But even some of the more established mainstream organizations have started looking at this as an alternative to the way they've been operating for the last 20, 30, 40 years because they're beginning to see that we're making progress in ways that they didn't anticipate. Scientists are by nature curious. How do you keep your five scientists and their teams focused on this when they're discovering all sorts of other new things? And what do you do with all of the stuff that comes out of their discoveries that isn't focused on myelin repair? It's a great question, Bruce. Many people send me by email commercial from the Super Bowl several years ago about the cat herders and tell me I'm a professional cat herder. And it was an area that we had concerns about from the beginning. The way in which we keep our research team focused is really through our planning process. And again, it, it's a, a process that involves them from the get-go. So the principal investigators are responsible for helping us define the strategic plan back in 2003 and creating the annual research plan. And that's why I'm here in Chicago this week is to review uh, that annual plan. There are times when our research results in discoveries that aren't specifically relevant to myelin repair. A good example was an animal mouse model that was developed at the University of Chicago, which the scientists asked us to terminate the project because it really was more relevant to something called Canavan's disease. And while we did that, we allowed him to keep the funding and redeploy that to other projects that he was working on and assisted him in finding other funding sources that were specifically interested in Canavan's disease. And so we view all these things as opportunities to make sure that the sum is greater than the individual parts. I've heard you use the term valley of death as a place where discoveries get lost in. What is the valley of death and how do you make sure your discoveries don't end up there? Well, we started out talking about this translational research gap and how difficult it is from even the most outstanding discoveries in academic science to make it into commercial development. And then as I started engaging with the pharmaceutical industry in 2006, I started hearing this term from people in industry and uh, it was quite dramatic. The problem is that many academic discoveries, the data that's generated is sufficient for scientific publication and to stimulate other academics to think creatively about the next experiment. Very few academics want to go back and repeat the same experiment over and over and over. And yet, industry is unwilling to make that $100 million to billion dollar bet on developing a new drug or treatment unless they have some comfort that this really is a reproducible discovery and something that is a druggable target, for instance. And so this is where we step in, is that we encourage the early stage discovery, which has now brought 18 new targets uh, to the top, but also provide resources to validate targets and stimulate early stage drug discovery so that they can be the risk associated with these new and novel targets can be brought to a level where industry can justify putting in the resources. So where can patients and physicians find out more about the work you're doing at the Myelin Repair Foundation or 
Where can other foundations find out how to get a uh, hold of information about the Accelerated Research Consortium model? If you go to www.mylinrepair.org, and that's M-Y-E-L-I-N-R-E-P-A-I-R, uh, you'll find information there about our model, about our research plans, uh, about our results to date, and about all the people who are participating in the process. You'll also find my contact information on the website, and people are welcome to give me a call. Cure for MS might be decades away, but the Myelin Repair Foundation is determined to find a way for MS patients to live long and healthy lives while a cure is found. I want to thank our guest, Rusty Bromley, Chief Operating Officer of the California-based Myelin Repair Foundation, for helping us get to know this innovative organization. I'm attorney Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Stay on top of the latest medical topics by visiting our new website at ReachMD.com, where we welcome your questions and comments. Use the promotion code RADIO when registering online and receive six months of complete access to our on-demand library of podcasts. And thank you for listening.